Before we begin, a disclaimer. This podcast is for information only. I am not a mental health or medical professional, nor are my guests unless otherwise stated. My guests and I do not speak for or represent any recovery programs or workshops. I do not sell ads on this podcast, and I do not make any money from it. And finally, I want to warn you that some episodes may contain content about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, which some listeners may find triggering or dysregulating. Hello, and welcome to the Loving Parent Podcast. If you're new here, this is where we explore the ideas of becoming our own loving parents and reparenting our trauma to build resilience. If you've been here before, welcome back. My name is Brita, and I'm your host. Hi there, and welcome to the podcast. Today, my guest is Teresa. I'd like to welcome her to the program. She has over 10 years of recovery, and I think she's got some things to say that people will find helpful. So, Teresa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brita. So I'd like to start with having you just briefly describe the family that you were born into. Were your parents married? Were they happy? What's your birth order? That kind of thing. Uh, Sure. Um, I was, uh, my parents were married and um, my parents had an arranged marriage. They were married at a time where arranged marriages occurred frequently. My ancestry is from Northern India. And Mm -hmm. um, I am the eldest of three children. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, we were a traditional Indian family when I started school because both my parents worked. I went to my grandmother's house. And um, I stayed there during the week uh, with my mom and my two siblings. And then on the weekends, we'd go back home. Uh, My father worked a graveyard shift in a lumber mill. And so um, it seemed to be the best scenario for a working set of parents in a traditional family where typically the grandparents take care of the grandchildren. I believe that I was a pretty happy kid. I loved being outside. I loved sports. And um, I didn't know any different. I didn't know any different at all. I, I truly did believe that that was the way things were. And I loved spending time with my grandmother. Right. Now, were you born in this country or in India? So my mother was born in Canada. I'm actually from Vancouver. My mother was born in Canada. All of her siblings were born in Canada. But my grandmother and my grandfather were born in India. So I was, I and my three siblings were born in Vancouver. My father was born in India. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds like, like you said, like a very traditional Indian family. Now, was anybody addicted in your family when you were born or as you were a small child or had a a diagnosed mental illness? Looking back, there were some things that frightened me. I was frightened when my grandmother and my aunt were, were 
packed up and sent off. And I was frightened because my uncles came and I didn't know what was happening. I was extremely close to my grandmother. Um, I spent all my time with her. So she really was uh, a mother figure to me, even though my mother was present in my life. And I didn't know until afterwards that there was some addiction in the family. And the addiction had started when my grandmother and my aunt were considerably younger. And uh, what I heard was that my aunt was addicted to diet pills. And there were, remember growing up, there were like blue pills and pink pills, but I didn't know what, which was which, but that obviously had carried over for several years. And yeah. uh, looking back and knowing what I know about addiction, there definitely must have been something going on for them to have been sent off. And I did go to visit my grandmother for a short period of time to some sort of institution. They weren't there very long. Yeah. Okay. And I also remember something as a child, I re- it, it, but it wasn't, I'm still to this day, not exactly sure, but my father, I remember there being just uh, in the closet, the bedroom closet of, where he he was because my parents had separate bedrooms and then I my sister and I when we came home on the weekend we shared the bedroom with my mom and then my brother had my little brother was in another bedroom with my mom and and I remember seeing like the brand was called navy rum and I remember seeing bottles in the closet and I thought that it was just interesting but my father never really drank when he would drink occasionally that I'd see him at family functions. He was always a happy guy, but I, I don't, I'm I'm still not sure if my father really was an alcoholic. A lot of Indian men drink Navy rum. So I'm not sure if he really has in the, the addiction, but that's what I recall uh, being a child. And now both my parents have passed away. So I, I don't have any way of really knowing any different now. Generally speaking, in um, a dysfunctional family, the family roles of hero, scapegoat, lost child, and entertainer or clown are filled in order. And so that usually makes the oldest child the family hero. Did that fit for you? I think I was really a a hybrid. I think I was, um, I was probably a hero and a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. Definitely being the eldest and being responsible for my siblings. I was taught at a young age to take care of them. And Mm -hmm. um, I also became a scapegoat because I loved to read and I wanted uh, to try different things. And so some, oftentimes I would get ridiculed for them. And so, and so I wonder if at times I was a scapegoat because I so readily take on the responsibility of, of being the eldest and being super responsible and, of course, that makes me the target of if anything goes wrong, it, it can certainly be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How much older are you than the other two siblings? I am 20 months older than my sister and I am four okay. years older than my brother. Yeah. That's just about what it is in my family. I'm 16 months older than my sister. And then there was a brother and another sister within the next uh, three years. So we're all four years and 10 months apart. I think of poor mother with a ringer washer and no hair. Exactly. <laughs> like, 
Oh my gosh, how they did it, these poor women. So having to be responsible for your younger siblings brings up to me the word parentified. So do you remember feeling like you were being asked to be the parent at any time or that you were somehow parenting your parents? Um, I think for my mom, I was always responsible for my sister, my brother, and I remember us going to school in my grandmother's house. There was my mom's sister, the one that um, had taken the diet pills. And so she lived there with her two children. And so there were like five of us kids going to school and it was a heck of a job getting us all to school on time. Cause sometimes my sister and my cousin who are very close in age, they took their time getting up the hill. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling them we've got to hurry up and then, of course, like most children, they took their time and then ran the last couple of feet. Right. So those were my early times. And in the summer, the five of us would, you know, be playing around or going somewhere or going to the down to the river, Fraser River and, and playing. And mm-hmm. so if anybody got in trouble, I was usually the one getting in trouble. I had an older cousin, a year older than me, who not even really a year older than me, who always got me into trouble and was quite a bully. So I learned at a young age that everything was my fault. And then Uh as I became a teenager and we moved to our own house, and so it was just our family, not my father, because my parents had divorced by then. I was responsible for my sister and brother who were still younger than me. And in the summertime, making sure that they got lunch and, and, um, it was pretty mild. I wasn't, I, I wasn't really um, responsible for too much because they were pretty easy, uh, easy kids mm. and didn't get themselves yeah. into any trouble at all. But I do remember, I do remember in my teen years becoming more of a co-parent with my mom and mm-hmm. feeling that responsibility. And I remember one time when we were moving to our back to our house and my mom had had some lumber on top of the car and she told me to hold on. So I rolled down my window <laughs> and I held on to the top of it. I'm sure it was. Right. I'm sure it was. My, my mom just wasn't the type. Yeah. But I remember thinking, going up the hill, if I let this go, all this lumber is going to be all over the road. And so I really mm-hmm. felt like it was my task to make sure right. it stayed on. And I was, I was probably 12, 13. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I only laugh in identification because that brought up a memory for me of riding in the car with mother and she had a mattress on the roof of the car and she was holding on to one side while she drove and she wanted me to put my hand out the window, hold on to the other side. And I remember having the same thoughts. If I let this go, this thing's going to fall and all the stuffing's going to come out. And it's just kind of amazing what we were asked to do as kids that really wasn't our jobs. Right. Yeah. Do you remember being a confidant for your mom? Did she tell you her problems? That kind of thing? No, my mom, my mom did not, um, not until she told us she was going to divorce my, or she was divorcing. She had divorced my dad. Yeah. I think I knew. Uh Um, I do. It was a very challenging situation for my mom to be, you know, schlepping these kids back and forth. And, and then my mom, my mom was a smoker. Everybody smoked in her family. It was the thing Mm -hmm. of the fifties. And so 
they smoked and my father didn't like it. And I remember my father actually hitting my mom once with the broom and the three of us trying to get the broom off my dad. So my mom had a very, very challenging life and realized very, you know, after several years that it was, it was too much. And she got the courage to, to divorce my dad. My my mom yeah. never really confided anything personal to me of any nature. My father had said, though, numerous times after that, I don't know why your mummy divorced me. And um, and I told my mom, you know, I want to go live with my dad because I was daddy's girl. And she kind of laughed at me and and and, and just laughed it off. Um, didn't, yeah. you know, because she she had had such a challenge with my dad. And I, I actually figured it out years later that my dad was just very, very traditional and um, just was not one to, to be the kind of partner that my mom needed in, in supporting a family and raising a family. Do you but think my- that was because he was raised in the old country with the old traditions <sighs> where the women did most of that? You, you know, I... I realized some things about my parents in, in, in recovery and my father never drove. I, I, my father came from a village, so Mm. I don't know what kind of fear may have caused him to not want to drive. He never drove. He walked everywhere. He was a big time walker, took the bus. Right. And, um, I would sense that it would be very difficult to go to another country and not have your family and not have your any support. I'm not so sure my father would. I, I do think my father was probably raised in some sort of dysfunctional environment as well, uh, which didn't help him a whole lot in coming to a new country. Right. Um, so I'm, I, I would say it would was particularly challenging for both of them. And there was right possibly no help and support in uh for for either of them uh, other than this is what you do yeah this is what you do and my mom was way too westernized okay so when you were a little girl do you remember safe um i i know there were pockets of places in my grandmother's house. And it's very interesting because I'm not so sure that, I think it was just comfort more than anything else. Between our kitchen, the kitchen and the dining room, there there was this, um, gosh, I, I guess it was a vent where the heat would come out and you could close off one side and then you get heat out the other side. So I remember sitting often on the floor. Um, but I, I, I was very, very scrawny, very, very skinny. And um, in Vancouver, it's cold and it's rainy. But I, I don't, I don't, you know, just other places in the house that we played and things like that. But I don't, I don't really think there was a place that I can remember today that I thought that I needed to be, you know, I needed to go to, to feel safe or to be away from the noise. There was quite a bit of, 
ruckus in our house. The, you know, I had my aunt and then I had two other aunts. So we were quite a few people in, you know, in one home with one bathroom. Um, and the women would get really frustrated. Right. And sometimes there'd be a loud arguments <laughs> and sometimes, you know, food would go flying because someone would be really angry. I look back and I see it as a great deal of codependence that my aunts would, you know, I had an aunt who had two children. And then I had two single aunts that stepped in to help us as well. So who I became very, very close to, but I, I, I just think there was a lot of tension because there were so many people, but we were loved. We were fed first. All the children were fed first. Um, but I, I, I definitely have adapted some uh, character defects associated with that environment. Right. That's really neat that you can see that, you know, you were loved and like you said, being fed some of the other sacrifices that the adults probably need for you kids. It's, it's see those. Yeah. There was definitely a lot of love. Yeah. I think that's, that's just wonderful. Um, Are you familiar with the term cookie people? No. Okay, um, I'm going to have to giving Stephanie Brown credit for this. She was a, a writer in the 80s and 90s, and I think she came up the term. She said that um, in order for most of us to have gotten to when we were from alcoholic or addicted families, that we had to have some people along for a little and generally people outside of our home, although it could have been a grandparent, you had two other aunts who didn't have kids, um, but they're, they're the people who kind of kept us going or maybe validated us along the way. So can you think of any cookie yeah. pee? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my aunt, who is... Uh, who was actually, they've all passed away now, three years younger than my mom, uh, definitely was a very, she was very loving, very nurturing, and um, very much uh, the type of, she went out of her way to, um, to do things for me. And um, I was very, very fortunate to have her as was my mom, because she and my mom shared a car and they worked in the same place. So they'd go to work together. And then um, on the weekend, she dropped us off at home. And then she, she lived with my grandmother and then would go back. She very, very much so like that. Um, I had, um, I played sports. So I had, I had coaches that taught me many things. Uh And then, of course, when I got into my 20s, it was a little bit easier because there were more adults who who I trusted um, and could confide in. But as a child, it was mostly my aunt um, and my grandma. Mm-hmm. Right. What was your school experience like, your elementary school experience? Um, English was my, I did not go to school speaking English. I had to learn. Mm-hmm. There was no resources. I, we were the only East Indian family in the neighborhood. So there were, there were no mm-hmm. resources to help me. I remember in first grade, the teachers came to the home and did the parent, the teacher parent meeting. At, at least that's what I recall. Mm-hmm. And right. I, I remember 
I had straight D's in first grade. And the teacher Mm -hmm. told my mom that I wasn't going to amount to very much. And um, I don't know if I remember those exact words or that my mom had repeated those words so often as I was growing Mm -hmm. up because she, she was furious. And she said, what was that teacher thinking to have told me, look at all you've accomplished. And so I don't know if I really remember it or, but I sure as heck can tell you my mom did. Um, so right. I was not academic to start out with. I definitely was a spokesperson in my class because my mom told me she went into another parent teacher interview in sixth grade and the teacher told her that. So I like to talk a lot. Oh. I did. Mm-hmm. And what happened was um, I slowly, you know, I used to read a lot and I noticed that my vision was, I couldn't read the board in seventh grade, but my mom wouldn't get me glasses in seventh grade. She tried to send me to a faith healer to heal my eyesight. And when that didn't work, uh, she got me a pair of glasses and actually my aunt got me glasses and they were the most beautiful purple granny glasses you could ever imagine. Oh, isn't it amazing when you put them on? It was beautiful. Well, you could, I remember I was in third grade when I got mine and I remember saying out loud, I can see leaves on the trees. Mm -hmm. I didn't know you could see individual leaves on trees, Mm -hmm. Thought it was just this green blob. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. And my mom couldn't afford the glasses, but my aunt bought them for me. And I got, I got yeah. really, really nice glasses. So, and then what happened was when I went to high school, because we moved back to our house, I had to go to a new school. I didn't know anyone. Um, I actually really flourished academically because I studied so much. I studied and I studied and I studied and I did very, very well. And because now I could see and, um, Mm -hmm. and I made friends and I made friends with kind of the, the real bright uh, uh, kids. And we were on the same sports teams. I played three sports a year and they all played the same sports too. So that, it kind of is what happened to me in high school as I, I was quite a studious kid. It sounds like you blossomed there. I, I did. I was in a totally different environment. It was just us three kids and my mom in a home. So right. we had, we had, we, we, we had quiet. My mom would go to work and we had a routine and it was my sisters and mm-hmm. my job to make sure dinner was on the table when my mom came home and we had chores to do. And, um, right. And, and we were fine. We were totally fine. And I had lots of friends and played lots of sports. My mom couldn't, you know, she couldn't support the sport. She couldn't take, you know, take me to the various high schools. So I would get a lift with, uh, one of my, my best right. friend's dad that, that did the driving. That sounds really cool. I want to and ask you, now I know your parents divorced and that can be traumatic for kids. And in addition, to, do you remember uh, any other traumas in your childhood? No, I really don't. Um, the first person to pass away was actually my aunt that was um, uh 
addicted to the pain med and not pain meds, uh, diet pills. But that was when I was 20. I do not remember any other trauma with the exception of seeing my dad hit my mom. Uh, That was probably the most traumatic thing and trying to, to take the broom away from my dad. But I don't think it happened very often. I only actually remember once, but it must have happened a couple of times, I would think. Uh, Yeah. Other than that, nothing, because I was so sheltered. And Indian Uh families, Indian families um, were sheltered. I, I was bullied as a kid. I was bullied. You know, we were bullied because we were the only Indian family in the community. So we were bullied. Um, as most kids bullied were, you know, bullied, but nothing, nothing, no, nothing physically uh, to me. So tell me about your first romances. I wasn't, I wasn't really allowed to date or, or anything. Um, My father had said to my mom, when I turned 17, that it was time to arrange my marriage. And I told my dad, I wanted to study. I wanted to go to med school. And um, Mm -hmm. so that got him off my back. Um, But I did, I I did, I had a boyfriend, I had a boyfriend when I was 18. Um, And um, he was a friend of my cousin's. So he was a year, he was a year older than me. And we dated from 18 on and off for about nine years on and off. My goodness. Um, uh, I realized, I realized during that time that, I mean, he was very, very bright. He was an engineer. We, we studied together. So we were type of kids who go to school, mm-hmm. together, study together. Um, actually, I think we went to different schools, but we did study together on the weekends and um, right. He had a wonderful mom, but his dad was an alcoholic. And I remember his dad coming out and raging at him because I remember driving up in the alley. He'd come out and talk to me. And then I remember one time his dad was really violent and uh, or not violent, but I think he was violent because his, his wife, who I became very good friends with, eventually left him and told me how hard it was on her. She was they were both Austrian and she was a lovely woman, uh-huh. but it just had taken its toll on her. So she had laughed. Um, but the relationship was, it was on again, off again, on again. And mostly because I was the one pursuing the relationship. And um, I suppose he was the one probably running away from the relationship. Mm-hmm. And now okay, when I, so, Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say now when I look back, I, I, a part of me wonders if he was even interested in the relationship, but I, I do think, I do think he was because he did, he did tell me many years later when he tried to come back, he, he apologized profusely for his behavior, but he was, he was an adult child of an alcoholic. I see that now. Yeah. So in between dating him from time to time, were there other relationships? Yeah. So 
there was a, there was a relationship after him, um, which lasted about two years. And I had dated a physician who was training in Vancouver, who was from Germany. And um, he ultimately went back to, actually, he went back to Switzerland, because that's where he was working. And um, Mm -hmm. just kind of like, just drifted off. And I had called him once. And I asked him what was happening. And he had found someone else, but he he didn't tell um, me. So um, there was that relationship. And then I had um, an opportunity because my smart thinking was, well, I'm going to go to Europe and I'm going to get a job and I'm going to get him back. So I went to hmm. Europe and I got offered two jobs and I took one job. I didn't get him back, but I met someone that I became engaged to there. Uh-huh. And, um. Uh, he had an Indian background just like me, but he came from a different country. His parents were diplomats. And when it came time for us to want to marry, they were very traditional and told me that I would have to convert and change my name. And I said, no way. Um, oh. Ultimately, ultimately, that kind of fell apart because my mother had had an aneurysm and I decided to go back to Vancouver and to take care of my mom. Right. So, so that... Um, that had some lingering effects, but what happened was he moved to Chicago and I went back to Vancouver from Europe to take care of my mom. And then I decided I was going to go to Chicago and I was going to get this guy back. So Uh I ended up going to Chicago and I met someone in Chicago, but I became engaged to, and then I married. So Uh finally, um, (laughs) I, 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 I stopped that pattern yeah. and, um, and, and ended up living in Chicago. Yeah. I, you mentioned the word pattern and that was going to be my next question. What patterns did you see in those relationships? The pattern I, I believe I saw was abandonment and, you know, rejection mm. and abandonment and thinking that I was so self-reliant that I could get whatever I wanted and I needed this relationship Um, Mm -hmm. or maybe I needed the person. Maybe it wasn't the relationship. The relationship, of course, is a consequence of it, but really needing that um, as a crutch. And yeah, that one special person, that one special person. And um, Mm -hmm. I would do the craziest things and, and I was very successful because I was, I was smart. I was beautiful. I traveled the world. Um, and right. I was a very nice person and a nice girl, That mm-hmm. it was, it was easy. It, it was, and it worked right. every time or it seemed to work. Every <laughs> time. Um, and me- from the little bit, I know of you, Teresa, you are persistent. <laughs> I am. I just have that feeling that you are persistent. Yes. And, you know, that was a trait I learned in my family. I learned it from my grandmother. I learned it from my mom. I learned it from my aunt. And it has served me very, very well uh, that I can put my mind to something and and do it. I've lived 
I've lived all over the world. I've gone to school all over the world. I've, I've worked. Um, it's amazing when I look back at the opportunities. Uh-huh. And right. my family always supported me. I never really left home. I never really um, kind of unpacked my bedroom at home until I finally got married. And, um, uh-huh. and, and so I always had my family as that kind of support. So I was always kind of, I had this long string to my family while I was out trying to uh, pursue these goals that ultimately my higher power did not think was in my best interest. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really neat that you always felt that you had your family's support. Um, so many people don't. And um, I didn't. When when I left home, I was told that I was going to fail and that, you know, I was really discouraged from doing anything on my own, which I think has made me more self-sufficient in many ways. But I think it also pushed me into a marriage that was not good for me. So I don't know. It's, it's give and take, I guess. All right. Let's stop here for the first half. I really appreciate your being with us for this. And I look forward to hearing more from you in the next episode, Teresa. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brita. Thanks for joining me for this episode. It was produced by me, Brita Firm, and edited by Vaughn David. Our music is by Emmanuel Wilde. If you like what you heard, please leave a positive review and tell a friend. Also, tap subscribe and notifications so you won't miss a single episode. Remember, as you walk your reparenting path, you can take your time. You deserve all the love you want, and my love goes with you.